the RTA residence, the lady of the podcast speaking. Oh, Martin, how nice of you to ring, dear. It's Martin. Is it? What's that? You're doing a podcast with your little chum, Andy P. How wonderfully artistic of you. He's doing a podcast with Andy P. He's the one with enough DVD shelving to hold the complete Coronation Street, Crossroads and Dark Shadows. How much money do they want? Andrew says, how much money do you want? What's that? You don't want any, dear. They don't want any money. They just want us to plug it. What's it about? What's it about, dear? UK TV drama? It's about UK TV drama. Yes, of course we'll listen to it. Well, goodbye, dear. We'll be in conversation with you again soon. Isn't that marvellous? I think we've got a spin-off. But don't stand there getting dirty finger marks all over my wall, Andrew, dear. Start the theme music. Starting the theme music now. Hyacinth Bouquet is back, keeping up appearances. There's a man next door in Elizabeth's house. <laughs> Just imagine. If she keeps him, we could be sharing milk bottles. <laughs> we have to move. Move? How fortunate you are, Richard, to have a wife of impeccable moral rectitude. <laughs> Hyacinth Bouquet, keeping up appearances tonight at 7.15 on BBC One. Hello, I'm Andrew. Hello, I'm Lisa. Welcome to episode 47 of... Round the Archives. Although technically it's our 48th release now. This is, is going to get confusing. It is. Because if you've been listening on your podcast platforms, mm-hmm. you might have got the first of an occasional series known as RTA in Conversation. Yes. And there'll be more of those as, as we're in this lockdown period. Yes. We're taking the advantage. It's a very strange period. To do some extra bits and bobs, mm-hmm. which aren't full episodes, mm. but sort of are bonuses, I guess. Yes. Um, also in exciting news, um, Andy and Martin have got their spin-off series, mm-hmm. an A to Z of UK TV drama. Yeah. They'll be along later to tell you about that. Mm-hmm. But let's get a shift on then. Yes. As uh, we will look at... Keeping up appearances. Good afternoon, Lisa. Good afternoon, Andrew. Have you been keeping up appearances? Um, well, I don't know, really, have we? Well, you certainly have. Well, I've been watching Keeping Up Appearances. You've binged the whole lot in a, in a few short weeks. Yes, in about a month, yeah. just over. And have you enjoyed it? I have. After a while, you get to notice a few things that happen time after time after time, which seems to be a Roy Clark trope, mm. as with the till in Art Shop yeah. and 
various different things. But do you want to briefly explain what Keeping Up Appearances is? So Keeping Up Appearances is the story of a lady called Hyacinth Bucket or Bouquet, as she prefers to be known. And it's the story of her struggles to be more socially upward than she actually is and to get away from her family who she doesn't think are entirely suitable. Now, the credits say written by Roy Clark and produced yes. and directed by Harold Snow. Yes. Although there is some debate about how much of it that ends up on screen yeah. was actually written by Roy Clark. Most of it is written by Roy Clark. Yeah. There are added bits written by Harold Snow to change things he felt didn't work yeah. or things that were too visual because he, he says because we... We were lent his, um, it's not an autobiography, it's the making of the show and it's, it's t- entitled It's Bouquet, Not Bucket, the story behind the making of an extremely popular situation comedy. Thanks to Mark Aldridge for Mark supplying Aldridge this, for as it's yes. a hideously expensive yes. book otherwise. and you can only it? import it from America yeah. for some reason. There are certain times where the story didn't quite work yeah. or it was too visual because obviously Last of the Summer Wine is a very visual programme. And Harold Snow seems to think that Roy Clark confused this with keeping up appearances sometimes, which is a more, more to, it, is, it is a visual programme, but there's obviously a lot to do with the dialogue. Now, what's well. this about running up and down stairs? Yes, there's apparently one episode, and I think it's for series four, where he had them running up and down stairs, even though they actually live in a bungalow. <laughs> so that was sort of taken out and changed. Difficult. Yes. I mean, the series runs from 1990 to 1995. Yes. And I think the early 90s are a bit odd for comedy on BBC One, aren't they? There's some some good stuff and some less well-remembered stuff, and there's some bloody awful stuff, it has to be said. But this is definitely one of the most successful things from that period. It's very popular. It's very popular. It's very popular. It's very popular in America. Yeah. Um, I think it's a lot to do with the kind of comedy it is because there is a lot of physical comedy in there. You know, Hyacinth McKay is very reminiscent of Captain Mannering in a lot of lots of ways in the way she reacts to stuff and the fact that she oh, she wants to be thought of as better than she is because Captain Mannering's a bit of a snob and he mm. likes to think he's he's you know on the up and. Because you say there's a bit where she continually falls in a hedge. Yes. There's a bit when she goes to um, uh, Daisy and Onslow's house to see Daddy. So Daisy being Daisy her being sister. her sister yeah. and Onslow, her brother-in-law. He's got a sort of rusting old, I think it's Hillman Avenger, according to what I've read, in the front garden as it is. It's not really a garden, it's more of a yard. And there's a, the dog lives in the car, and the dog doesn't bark at anybody else apart from Hyacinth. So every time she walk past, walks past, the dog barks at her, and she reels back in horror and falls into the hedge. And it's very reminiscent of Captain Mannering coming up from having fallen over. Because she comes up askew. all askew, yeah. Yes. And you said she's also very good at being drunk, isn't she? She is. There's a scene where she's there's a, an episode called The Country House Sale. Though actually none of the episodes have titles yeah. on screen. Um, and that's from series four, I think, four or five. And she's bought um, the only thing Richard will let her bid for because she's she's got very expensive tastes. And the only thing he'll let her bid for is the Dowager Lady Ursula's gooseberry wine. Right. And coming out of the cell, they meet the current Lord of the Manor, and he invites them in, and they have a, they open one of the bottles of gooseberry wine, and we then cut to her coming out a little worse for wear. Uh, Country Sale is from series five. Series five, by the yeah. Way. yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's towards towards, towards the, the end, end of the run. Yeah. 
Who's the guest star in that? It's Bruce Montague. Yeah. From Butterflies. Yeah. yeah. I, thought, I thought I recognised You get him. one fairly good guest star in most episodes because there's an episode, I think it's in series four, which has got Freddie Yeager in as, as the sort of main guest star. And it's, I'm constantly amazed they managed to get these sort of fairly well-regarded actors for what is essentially a bit part. Well, Lord Litchfield turns up in yes. one of the Christmas specials, doesn't but that's, he? But that's the one on the QE2, yeah. and that's just because he just so happened to be on the ship doing a lecture tour. Oh, So they just said yeah. to him, would you like to just be in it briefly? And he said yes, because they actually asked Prince Edward was on the ship for a bit as well, yeah. and they wrote to Prince Edward and said, would you like to star? And Prince Edward declined, having learned his lesson on It's a Knockout. Bernard Holly's in that one as yes, well, he is. isn't he? Yeah. yeah. But that's that's quite an and odd episode. That's quite an odd episode, yeah. though, isn't it? Because, I mean, how, how did the filming for that sort of work? Because they essentially have to be on... The, it's not yeah. a set, it is actually on it the is ship, the isn't it? It is a yes. Um, I don't think they go much farther than Southampton Waters, really. Because mm. wasn't there talk about setting more on the ship or something like that? Yes, yeah, there was going to be more on the ship, but it's it's a sort of... Equal, more episodes more episodes yeah. yeah Roy Clark originally was going to um, set the whole of the next series on the QE term and I'm not quite sure how many situations you can get out of that so really. keeping up appearances at sea yes basically yes like Doctor at Sea <laughs> that's, that's a really odd yes. thing but let's talk about the characters so yes. you, you've said about Hyacinth yes she's the main character she's played yeah. by Patricia Routledge though mm. when they were initially conceiving the series um, Robin Nash, who is the then head of comedy, suggested Julie Waters, oh, right. okay. who's possibly a little too young yeah. for that part. But obviously, Patricia Routledge got the part, and she she is the perfect Hyacinth. Yeah. So, and who's her husband then? You've always got, also got Clive Swift, yeah. who's the long-suffering Richard, who's not actually as long-suffering as you thought, because as the series goes on. Because she never actually listens to what people are saying to her, mm. it gets increasingly sarcastic. And only occasionally does she pick up on this. Because there's one where he does actually put his foot down. There and is. It's quite a shock, isn't it, it when is. it happens? Yeah, there's one, um, I can't remember what episode it is now, but she... Is she, it where she's with... Is it the Jack Smethurst one? It is. Yeah, yeah she wants to use the phone, um, box. the phone box. And Jack Smethurst, again, a relatively well-known actor, there for a bit part gets in there first and she's hammering on it and being extremely annoying and Richard says to her but coming away that's a barbecue at Violet's yes yeah that's it series five yeah yeah but uh, yeah when, when he does tell her what to do yeah everybody's she, shocked including himself yeah <laughs> he was like oh my god did i just do that but she gets in the car <laughs> she and does she, you know she, she's cross afterwards yes, but it doesn't does. take long for her to get cross again but at that particular moment in time she's taken aback yeah yeah so um, so she's she's got a plethora of sisters, hasn't she? She has. Yeah. They're all named after flowers. Yeah. And and then, again, that's tied in with the name bouquet. Oh, right. Because it's a bouquet of flowers. Oh. Um, it's a bit Do of you a... know I've only just got that with you saying that? Well, I, I didn't get it at all until I read it somewhere. Okay. So, but, yes, yeah, so you've got Hyacinth, who's yeah. the oldest. Daisy, who is the next oldest. Yeah. Violet, who... There's a running joke with Violet because she lives in a large house with room for with a sauna and room for a pony, and that's something she always says. Has she actually got a pony? Or no, not? She's, just she's got, got room, room for, for a pony. Okay. And the youngest is Rose, yeah, who's a bit of a man eater. Because Rose regenerates. As she well, does. Because in the first series, it's, it's um, Shirley Steel Fox, but she wasn't available for the second series. Yeah. So Harold Snow gets Mary Miller in, who he's worked with before, and her performance is slightly larger. 
when yeah. Shirley Steele Fox. But it works. What did you say about her audition? Um, apparently she came in dressed for the part, so in an extremely short skirt. And Howard Snow says in his books that's not why she got the job, not that he didn't appreciate it. <laughs> okay, fine. Basically. But I have to say my favourite character is Onslow. Yes, Onslow is everybody's favourite character, I think, because yeah. he's, despite the way he looks, and he looks like a slob, and he's, you know, he's, he's, he doesn't work, and he's he's a bit lazy and feckless, but he's actually very intelligent behind that, and he hides it really well. Hmm. I mean, I, I just started to notice the books he was reading, because yeah. he does read the Financial Times, he does. but apparently he reads um, Brief History of Time, mm-hmm. But most of the time in bed in the sort of last series, he's reading the principles of condensed matter physics. Yes. Which, again, is a very expensive book. Yes. Written by P.M. Chaikin and T.C. Lebensky. It's Mm -hmm. available on Amazon. Yeah. From Cambridge University Press, which are always expensive books, which are, which are expensive books. But I was there. There is a brief sort of look inside mm-hmm. segment on there, yeah. and the idea that Onslow sat up in bed of an evening, yeah, reading c- this. Because what, what, what's um, is it Daisy? Daisy, she's, Re- she's reading sort of romantic novels. Mills and Boone mostly, yeah. Because yeah. she does fancy him. Oh God, she she looks. And she he's embarrassed. Yeah. yeah, he's just it's a that again is a real sort of. George and Mildred kind of thing where you've got a sort of quite dominant sexual woman and mm. a man who's really not interested in it at all. Yeah. But yeah, I'm just I'm just, uh, just finding a section here mm. from So this is Onslow's idea of bedtime reading. Yeah. Imagine that we knew all of the fundamental laws of nature, understood them completely and could identify all of the elementary particles. Would we be able to explain all physical phenomena with this knowledge? We could do a good job of predicting how a single particle moves in an applied potential, and we could equally well predict the motion of two interacting particles by separating centre of mass and interparticle coordinates. But there are only a few problems involving three particles which we could solve exactly. The phenomenon we commonly observe involve not one or two or three, but the order of 10 to the 27 particles, i.e. in a litre of water, water, there is little hope of finding an analytical solution for the motion of all these particles. Now, it does take a long time to get through the book. Yes. I'll give him that. Yeah. But he keeps coming back to it, he doesn't does. he? He does. He's still reading it. Yeah. Still reading it, yeah. Yeah, and I just like the idea that just he sat there in his vest with his yeah. can of beer in his hand. Yeah. He's interested in physics. Mm-hmm. He's also interested in Steptoe and Son, I've noticed. Yes, because he's got a Steptoe video. They've got said. a load of videos yeah. in the background. It's hard to see them, but there's definitely mm-hmm. a Steptoe and Son one mm-hmm. that I, I, I recognise. And there's another link with Steptoe, isn't there? Because you said Patricia Oh, Rattlet, Patricia Rattlet, of course. She, she, yes. pl- she plays a sort of psychic medium mm. in, in towards the right at the end of the, the run of Steptoe. It's a very strange performance. Yeah. But then I, I think Hyacinth gets increasingly strange, she does, doesn't she? She does. And I've just noticed, because we've got, we've got another couple of books. i got some books that are tied in. These are sort of like tie-in. They're not novels, but mm. they're sort of riffing on the character of Hyacinth. And on the front of Hyacinth Bouquet's hectic social calendar, she's got the wrong phone. Oh, yes. Because the phone she's got is is a sort of, as she describes it, a slimline white mm phone with last our read last redial <laughs> but this is like a sort of um more old-fashioned kind of phone yeah. so i wonder if that's from something else completely actually I that photograph but i'm um, talking about a phone mm. um 
it did amuse me when yeah. when she's got she's got a mobile phone. Yes, that's in the last episode, the pageant. Yeah, and she's <laughs> demonstrating the mobile phone, and she yes. sort of struts around she does. as though the person on the other end you can see her. can see what she's doing. Yes. Yes. But that that final episode is odd because you said you, you get a huge history info dump. You do, you? you do, because um, they're doing a pageant about the Civil War, mm. and she's going to play Queen Henrietta Maria, who was Charles II's uh, queen. Yeah. And considerably younger than she was, anyway. But Emmett, who is um, her next-door neighbour, Elizabeth's brother, yeah. and we'll come back to Elizabeth in a minute, gives this huge chunk of information about Henrietta Maria, about how they were married by proxy in France, and then they married again when she came to England in Canterbury. And it's, you know, it's, it's a huge kind of, like, chunk of history. If it was written now, I'd almost accuse somebody of having just looked on Wikipedia yeah. and copied and, and, copy pasted and pasted a couple of paragraphs. Yeah. It's yeah. very odd. But talking of Emma, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous, because she's, I mean, she's a monstrous character, mm. I think. There is no getting away from that. But I found myself feeling increasingly sorry for her because everybody's really horrible to her, apart from her sisters, Richard and Elizabeth. Yeah. Uh, but she, I mean, obviously she doesn't notice because she's, she's just oblivious to it. But it's quite uncomfortable watching some of the nastiness directed at her. Because some people, I think, don't get on with her as a character, do they? No. You know, some people just are put off by, yes. by by the fact that she's the lead character. Mm-hmm. And I guess, you know, living with her or next door to her would be fairly horrendous. Yes. But I, I guess you're right that over time you, you come to yeah. sort of understand her a bit more. Yeah, and uh, as you, you, you said, you, you think she's sort of, by the end of it, she's got a sort of problem, isn't uh, she? I think she might have had problems in her upbringing. Yeah. Because there is a, a one-off Prequel. thing. Yeah. Um, Young Hyacinth mm-hmm. that was done a few years ago. Yes, for the landmark comedy series in and 2016. I, th- I think it was an interesting idea, but I don't yeah. think it came off. No, um, it does feel like different characters. Yeah, it, it almost feels like fan fiction. Yeah. I hate to say it, but it's, <laughs> it's very odd. But but let, let's talk about coming round for a cup of tea and a biscuit. A cup then. of coffee. A cup of coffee and yeah. a biscuit. So again, this is, this is like, as we said earlier, um, Arkwright's Teal. This yeah. is something that happens in most, if not every episode. And it's the fact that Elizabeth, who is a very... She's very nice, and she's she's Hyacinth's friend, and, you know, she's very supportive of her. But she, she makes her really nervous when she's in the house. So, basically, every time she goes to there for a cup of um, coffee, she spills it. So, in the end, you get varying different ways in how she spills it and what cup she uses. Because it starts off with... Um, She's got these royal Dutton cups with the hand-painted periwinkles. And Elizabeth is terrified of having these cups. Because there is one episode where she's... I think she's got one of the cups and she's holding it. Because she can hold it steady as rock when Hyacinth's not in the room. But Hyacinth makes her really uncomfortable. But Hyacinth come back, comes back in and she flings the cup. And it, and it's, it's caught by Hyacinth. And it's, a, again, another piece of great physical comedy. So in the end, she gets a beaker. Yeah. Like a, a, a sort of just a normal beaker. And she spills that as well. And there's one episode where she gives her a baby's sippy cup. <laughs> and then they sellotape it up. And then, of course, she gets off the sugar and she can't get in it to put the sugar in because it's been sellotaped up. But again, it, every time it ends with the coffee on the floor or over Emma or over Elizabeth or 
or dropping the biscuit in the cup or, you know, various different things on this, this theme. One of the episodes I liked was the Commodore. Yes. Because um, explain because uh, the, the Commodore, he's, he's going to come to give a talk or yes. something, isn't he? Yes. So they go to the station and then they find to out... To pick him up. To pick him up. And then they find out... The railway station, I should say. Yeah. And then they find out he's not going to be coming to that station because there's a problem with the train line and he's coming to a different station. Meanwhile, Hyacinth has got Richard to park his car on double yellow lines. They come out of the railway station to find he's been clamped. They then flag the vicar down who gets involved in it and drives to this other station only to find that he's already made his way to the hall where the talk is being given. So they get to the hall and Hyacinth offers him a lift back to the station, the railway station. I have to say railway, otherwise Warren will get cross. <laughs> and he's basically a bit of a ladies' man. So he, he's sort of a bit too touchy-feely. And she seems to have this effect on lots of men because there's another character called the Major who does this to her, leaving her dishevelled. <laughs> a riverside picnic is rather yes. fun as well. Yes. Um, so... It's it's not a riverside picnic she no, she organises though, is it? No. It's a waterside supper with riparian entertainment. Yes, and she like ropes everybody in to she does. cut all this stuff yeah, and along this the long riverbank. Scene. Yeah, and she's like, no, we, we, it's a little bit further, and they get there and they're digging it up or dredging it or bring, something. Bringing like tables and chairs yeah. and all sorts of stuff. Yes, because they've got like two or three cars just with yes. stuff. All on, all, the roof all on the roof and, and everything. Yeah. Did we say that Anna Dawson is, is no, Violet? No, we didn't we should, say, Anna we should say that. Well, we haven't actually said who's playing who apart from, yeah. from the main two characters. So obviously you've got jo- Josephine Tewson as mm. Elizabeth and Clive... Clive? That's his character. David Griffin as um, Emmett. You've got uh, Judy Cornwall as Daisy and Geoffrey Hughes as Onslow. Mm-hmm. And yes, as you said, Aaron Dawson as, as Violet, we who's me- only really in the last series. We should mention the postman as and well. And the postman, who's mostly played by um, David Jansen. David Jansen, who would go, who had played the second hair flick. Yeah, and, and was oh, in Get Some In. I was going to say X of Get Some In. Yeah. for me, really, because yeah. yeah. he's just scared of like he's, going. Yeah. Getting anywhere near a slot, if you'll pardon the yes. expression. Yeah, because there's one episode where he gets a small boy to do it, and there's an outtake from that episode where he's talking to him, and the, and the boy turns to the camera and goes, "He makes me laugh." <laughs> <laughs> Completely sort of out of character. But there's there were some problems between Harold Snowed and Roy Clark. Yeah, because sometimes, as we said, there would be need, needed a rewrite, and <clears throat> apparently Roy Clark doesn't watch his own stuff. No. So he didn't always realise, apart from one occasion, which is the third Christmas special, which apparently is one of the, is the most popular, which I don't quite understand because it has no story really to speak of. <laughs> it's all about kitchen worktops and things, but it does have Triumph Bannister in. So, And after, Harold Snowd made some changes and after the episode, well, about a month or so after, it appears that Roy Clark had recorded it and finally got around to watching it and was outraged at the changes made and sent a letter to the BBC, which I think sent them into a bit of a panic. I think he basically said that if something didn't happen to change this, he wouldn't write for the BBC again. And obviously he was still writing Last of the Summer Wine at this point, which is one of their biggest uh, comedies. So basically, um, David Lidman, who was the head of the entertainment department, so Harold Snow's ultimate boss, called him in and gave him a severe dressing down about changing the episode 
despite the fact he already knew he had. Yeah. It's interesting that there, they're on the side of the writer, yeah. not the producer, which yeah. is the opposite situation, I think, to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Mm-hmm. So just interesting that... But I think it's the fact that Roy Clark is, well, at that time, yeah. when the writer of one of their most popular comedy series and they had to keep him on side. Because there was sort of similar tension between sort of Alan Bell and Douglas Adams. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but Alan Bell was mm-hmm. was, was the sort of favoured one, yeah. I guess. And yeah. I will say this is just from the book. I don't know how to know yeah. the book, so obviously there is no nothing from Roy Clark. Though on the Comedy Connections for it, they both point out that they had their disagreements over time. In fact, they had to employ a script editor who could be a go-between yeah. between them because obviously this this does happen quite a lot though because yeah. I'm I'm thinking of like Doom Watch. Yes. And I'm thinking of survivors. Mm-hmm. So it's it's this thing you've got you've got sort of several people who've got slightly different visions mm-hmm. of what a series is. Yeah. So so where does the buck stop? Who who actually gets the the yeah. final say and, and it's always interesting. To though. be honest, I think it should be the producer of the show because ultimately they're the one in charge they're the one with their feet on the ground seeing what's going on day to day Mm. and what you can do and what you can't because what about plots because they're fairly simple most of the time and sometimes the episodes just stop don't they what was the one where richard was stuck up the the ladder or something that's the third christmas special yeah yeah um somebody needs to because there's a strange man in in daddy's bed yeah because he's rented his bed out to somebody else. So, and Onslow won't climb the ladder, and Hyacinth can't climb the ladder, and Richard's got this sort of huge bandage on his foot, because he's got athlete's foot, but uh, Hyacinth has told everybody he's got gout, because it's much more aristocratic. So he's climbing this ladder with this huge bandage on his foot, having had to drive to Daisy's with no shoe on, so leading to sort of the car just bumping along. And he gets distracted or the not the ladder or something and he's left hanging on the rung of the ladder by this bandage on his foot and they just leave him there <laughs> daddy comes back the strange man goes and they just leave him hanging there and i'm like no, what no you can't do that <laughs> but apparently before that they, they harold snow changed this is again according to harold snow i will emphasize that it didn't show how he got into that position. It just showed him in that position. So he put the little bit in just to make it clear what happened. So, but yeah, it's it's difficult, yeah. I think, when your writer and your producer don't get along. And they, I think he only met him once. But I, I knew some of these episode because what's the one with angus lenny oh that's the ropes day out i feel yeah. like i've seen that far too many yeah, times I, I do know that one but yeah. was angus lenny playing in italian, italian yeah which is a very odd bit of it casting is, in, yeah. in my book with very dyed hair or yeah. a, a very awful wig on or something so <laughs> yeah. i've never seen him play italian no <laughs> but yeah so that that that's that's quite a familiar one but quite yeah. a the a lot of the, especially the later ones, I yes. didn't really know at all. No, the so. last episode, the last episode, the hostess I know, the one before I'd not seen before, I don't think. Yeah. It's odd because I think I've mostly seen it on repeats on, on sort of cable channels. Yeah. So, in, and it's it's strange what episodes you end up seeing more than once. But doing them all in one go, mm. I mean, yeah, it, we, we did it fairly, fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. But I think they. They stand up, they do, but, and, and yeah. the quality, you know, keeps up all through the run. I, I, don't, I don't think it 
you know, it, it, it neither ends too soon no. or hangs around too long. I no. think there's no. the right number of episodes. Yeah. Though yeah. I do think the last series, the nastiness of Emmett's character, I think is a little misjudged. Mm. And I know, as I said, she's a she's totally insensitive to the fact that what he's saying to her and what he's doing, but it just feels a bit mean-spirited. Yeah. But that's because... But I think I, I think overall you've enjoyed doing, have, doing them. I have, and, and I'm actually quite disappointed I've watched them all now because, yeah. you know, I mean, I will go back and watch them again. Because we didn't want to do a sing, concentrate on a single episode no. this time. We wanted to do an overview. Of the series. But we can certainly come back and, and go through them with, with sort of, in sort of finer detail mm-hmm. later down the line. I think there's enough there's enough meat yeah. on the bone with most of these episodes to do that. But you do you do enjoy the characters, and yes, as yeah. you said, I think Onslow is is the yeah. best character, and you do sort of feel sorry for because there was talk about an Onslow spin-off, spin-off. wasn't there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I, I'd have been quite interested in seeing that. Yeah, and they so. did do some stuff for PBS in America with linking stuff with Onslow and Daisy, mm. so but it's very hard to track down. But I also like the symmetry that we, you know, our, our first sort of major mention of Patricia Routledge was when she was playing Queen Victoria. Yes. For Victoria Regina a few mm-hmm. few issues ago. Well, and then, about a year ago, actually. Yeah, and then she yeah. ends up playing the final shot of her. Yeah. Is as a, a queen yes. being put in an ambulance, yes. isn't, isn't she? Having been hit on the head by a, yeah. a curtain in the theatre because Emmett told her that she was... Henrietta Maria was a bit risque, which again wins his very many. And I've just, I've just noticed on Wikipedia it says the pageant. This episode was watched by sixteen point seven million viewers. Gosh, blimey! Those O'Reilly. were the days. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. But there we are. There's keeping up appearances, and I think mm-hmm. it comes highly recommended yes, from you, doesn't if, it? You know, yeah. if you've not seen it yeah. before, I would recommend you watch it. If you have seen it, you know, watch it because you'll find new stuff and. If you don't like Hyacinth, mm. give it another go because, yes, she is. She's in the tradition of pompous characters like Basil Fawlty and and, Ca- and Captain Mannering, mm. and I think she works really well like that. Yeah. Okay, well, there you are. Thank you very much, Lisa, okay. and uh, we'll go off and see what we can find. Okay, then. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you very much for doing that, Lisa. Thank you for helping, Andrew. Right, moving on. Uh, Martin and Andy will tell us about their new project. They will. In what I guess is a little plug spot. It is. And then Martin will continue his analysis of... Quite a mess in the pit. Hello, Round the Archives listeners. This is Andy. Hello. This is Martin. Hello. We're here to tell you about an exciting, nay, thrilling podcasting project. <laughs> We've got a spin off. We've got a spin off. <laughs> yeah, uh, we are quite excited about it. Um, <laughs> childish glee. Indeed, um, but, but 
you know, <laughs> we don't we don't want to feel that somehow we're we're leaving you behind. You know, you're not you're not heard the last of us yet. You know? No, certainly not. Well, I'm, the amount of Quated MS episodes you've done for them. <laughs> <laughs> so, the it, it's not called the. We keep talking about this. So, an A to Z of UK TV drama with myself, Andy, and with Martin will be going out monthly from um well it's april already, it's already, well no yeah, it's, already, it's already yeah. started it's already started yeah. and the first episode covers all creatures great and small i believe the second one is the Bidebeck affair yeah and then we're going to move on to detective drama campion and of course doom watch Gosh, you have watch. to do Doom Watch. You have because to do let's it. face it, if we do Doctor Who all the time, that would just be wrong. Yes. And beyond that, more of best drama, which is made in, <laughs> it's made in the UK. So tune in for our monthly explorations and analyses of classic TV drama from the UK. Hurrah! <laughs> have I missed anything, Martin? I don't think so. I think that basically says that's what we're going to do. You can probably find us at TV Drama Pod or no. at TV Drama Pod on Twitter, and that's where you'll find out what we're doing next. It is. It absolutely is. It's like we have a plan. There is even shiny theme music. Gosh. <laughs> With a surge. There's a surge. I like a good. Sur- I like a good surge. <laughs> I always think. That, I worry that people think we've got some sort of master plan in place. You know. But, um, no. But really, you know. Hey, we're just making it up as we go along, really. Although, yeah. are we? Ah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So now we return you to episode 47 of Round the Archives with the beautiful and gorgeous Andrew and Lisa. Which is which? That's for you to decide. <laughs> Martin's left. He's left, left the building. Martin Holmes has left the building. No, I've just got, I've just got the giggles. <laughs> <laughs> the end. Skip to the end. Since this advert was recorded, we've decided to go out fortnightly. The first three episodes are all now available on SoundCloud, iTunes and Spotify. Episode 4 on Doomwatch comes out on 18th of April and episode 5 on Edge of Darkness on 2nd of May. (laughs) You've got an edit you can do in there, that'll be fine. Episode 4 of the Nigel Neal six-part serial Quatermass and the Pit was broadcast on the 12th of January 1959, and at first it seems as if it is something of a procedural episode full of exposition and explanation, as some kind of semblance of sense starts to be made as the various plot strands developed in the first half of the story start to weave together in a way that really refuses to underestimate the intelligence of the regular viewers. Those regular viewers, however, have just spent an entire week wondering just what the hell those things were that Professor Quatermass and Colonel Breen discovered behind that inner port as it was turned and opened. 
Answers will come thick and fast in what, initially at least, is a very talky episode. The last ten minutes, however, will take the viewers on a very different and memorable journey that really would have caused an epic quantity of water-cooler moments if such things had happened in the late 1950s Britain. Assuming anyone had been able to sleep, that is, because this episode, entitled The Enchanted, goes to some quite terrifying places before it's all over, and might even top the ending of the previous week's episode for all-out primetime horrors. That's hard to measure, of course, because those things that were found in the pit have been lurking in the public consciousness for nearly a week now, and despite the professor's assurances that they're dead and have been so for quite some time, the nation saw one of the blighters move, didn't they? And might not have been listening anyway, with those cushions firmly clamped to their ears. Fear is a peculiar thing, isn't it? A sofa or even a cushion is never going to save you, but if you can shut out the noise and shut out the images, maybe you can convince yourself that the horrible thing just isn't happening over there on the flickering screen in the corner of your own living room. The titles fade, and the soothing, dispassionate voiceover tells us exactly where we are up to in the story, and helps us with the pronunciation of both Quatermass and Roni, in case any of us were still wondering, and uses trigger words like haunted and hideous to help us get in the mood, whilst quietly giving us the author's preferred term for that inner hatch, a port, as it is turned and opened into a reprise of those creatures, and that sudden drop one of them makes again. I still wonder if the audience still jumped when they saw it again. Swiftly, we find ourselves in a wide shot looking at our heroes framed by the circular door hole of what we can probably now properly refer to as the alien vessel, unless you're within earshot of Colonel Breen, of course. Whatever those things actually are, it appears that they are decomposing fast, and this looks like a job for some archaeologists, if any might happen to be around. Oh, wait a minute. We're at an archaeological dig, aren't we? It's almost as if somebody was carefully plotting this story all along. Anyway, this looks like a job for Roni, who bundles Barbara off to get some help from the Institute. She exits the vessel and passes our chorus of sappers, who, like the audience at home, are still bewildered and want to know what's going on. Shaken, however, by what she has seen, she says nothing as she passes them by, and it is Corporal Gibson once again who pipes up with, She's got the wind up! But it seems that they all have. Oddly, it is the obviously shaken Breen who first uses the words colossal insect and is visibly shaken by this challenge to his understanding of the world. Anthony Bushell is once again superb in this episode, playing Breen as a man teetering on the brink of losing all self-control in the face of this absurdity that he simply cannot process on his own terms. There's talk of resemblance to crabs and locusts to try and make earthly sense of these three-legged arthropods, creatures so very different from humanity and anything on earth, and, and a stench of rotting fish that even causes the reliable sergeant to have to go and make his excuses to go outside and throw up, where his e eager squad are awaiting any kind of answers to which giant insects probably isn't what they were expecting. Gibson seems to be getting the horrors himself when he realises that they were the ones who dug the thing up. Gibson shows genuine fear here, and as our audience identification figure of an ordinary bloke takes us along with him. Meanwhile, Captain Potter is looking decidedly woozy himself as he leaps into the fray to help out Barbara as she returns with the preservation gear and as she is handed the body of one of these colossal insects, she once again passes by the wide-eyed soldiers. Quatermass remains inside the spaceship and is looking thoughtful as he considers the various strands of membrane that are the remains of whatever web was holding the three insect creatures in place for all those millions of years. His imagination is running wild as he surmises that the membranes are the remains of instruments, 
and one cluster might possibly have been, in human terms, a bunk of some kind. Breen is of course dismissive, suggesting that he might be the kind of human who doesn't possess an imagination. There then follows an entire exchange on the nature of decomposition and how Roney believes that most of it occurred in the last hour, which once again makes no sense to the flabbergasted and increasingly unsettled Breen. And so they, and we, now understand about the nature of vacuum sealing and the corruption caused by the introduction to such an environment of the filthy London air, still less than three years after the introduction of the Clean Air Act. We cut to a wider view of the pit, presumably a short while later, as some sombre-looking fellows in overcoats arrive carrying packing cases, which must have deliberately resembled three small coffins to unsettle us further, down the ramp and into the builder's hut. We cut to a close-up of one of the aliens being sprayed with a preserving fluid by Barbara, who is wearing a surgical mask and suddenly looking quite sinister. And, as the bespectacled Klein is introduced, the science talk is all about horny shells and keeping the fluid separate, as it should be, and the viewers subtly learn a great deal about the genuine nature of these peculiar specimens, which is going to come in handy when certain things unfold at the Ministry later on. Meanwhile, Professor Bernard Quatermass is still plucking at strands inside the ship as the sinister music creeps in again. By now we're fully aware that this always suggests something unusual is about to happen, but for once, it's simply the journalist Fuller Love appearing in order to have something else explained to him as the professor considers a few more theories. These strands were put there, not grown, and they remind him of close-up photographs of nerve endings, subtly suggesting that the creatures flew this thing by the power of thought, and perhaps that their mental capacity was far greater than we humans could possibly imagine. An explanation for everything that's about to happen in the rest of the story. It's all there, you know, in the dialogue, if you pay close attention. There's a slight fluff here when the professor misses out a word in his explanation about the fibres terminating, but the consummate professional that is André Morel corrects himself and carries on. And do you know what? That's exactly what people do in the real world when they're explaining stuff, so it somehow adds to the realism of the piece in a way that vocal perfection of modern retakes simply sometimes fails to convey. Meanwhile, Fuller Love asks the direct question that we all want to know. Could these things have originated on this earth? And the shake of the head that he gets as the only reply from Quatermass is very telling. However, before they can pursue this, a visibly unsettled Breen turns up with Captain Potter, demanding that proper measurements of the structure will be taken, which does at least provide a logical reason for the one we see drawn on a chalkboard at the end of episode 6, if you've ever wondered. On meeting Fuller Love, however, Breen becomes apoplectic, and whilst Quatermass attempts to be reasonable, finally pointing out that there is no bomb, the enraged Breen demands that Fuller Love is forcibly removed, which might come back to bite him later, but certainly his fear is beginning to reveal itself. We catch another moment of the sergeant waiting for his cue to actually start the forcible removing, and then we get the argument which causes the schism between Quatermass and Breen, as Quatermass suggests that they may have made a mistake, and Breen's fuzzy logic about the professor's nonsenses kicks in. He knows the smell of death and how long it takes, and has opinions about the gutter press. He has his own theories which he plans to reveal in his own good time, but further debate is stalled as the door of the hut opens, and a procession of what looks like people carrying tiny coffins emerges, and Quatermass quietly points out that he won't be able to keep those a secret for long. We cut once again to the slightly tiresome newspaper office, although it's good to remind ourselves that as this scene plays out, actors and scene-setters are flying around in a frenzy off-screen to sort out the next scene, so it does serve some purpose other than the plot points it delivers. 
we are once again in the Gazette offices and James Fullerlove is rightly furious at being bundled out of the pit by this blundering blimp. And we are again treated to that Neil trope of seeing the cover of the late edition inasmuch as it furthers the plot and lets us know quite where we are. And in a whirlwind of monster insects, we are transported to a newspaper vendor outside the Nicklin Institute where the porter informs the gathering mob that they are closed. And... Surprisingly, the crowd then simply turn around and go away. Inside, however, Quatermass is now visiting Roni in his laboratory and is standing next to what we might nowadays call a hero shot of the fine prop of the remains of the creature rescued from the compartment earlier. And what a magnificent piece of work it is, especially as Roni maintains that this was the worst one in terms of preservation. Quick and impressive workers, these Nicklin Institute archaeologists. Being the worst one, they have chosen to display it in this way and not because it simply shows it off at its very best for the cameras. And there's a lot of science chat about preserved fluids and liquids and how they've handed the other two over to the insect department which is how he has chosen to classify them for all those experts mocking from their ask the family sofas at home so we're now in the territory of arthropods all of the insects the spiders and the crabs except for that pesky tripod leg formation so beloved of martians if you remember your hg wells although i'm never quite sure why we've decided that the inhabitants of mars should have been three-legged and then there are those antennae those pause for effect horns Quatermass once again makes the connections and joins the dots for those of us paying attention at home and reminds us of those prints and manuscripts that we were looking at during the previous episodes and points out the resemblance that can't have escaped the viewers to stone gargoyles that can be seen in the old churches across the planet. Art, imitating life, imitating art, given that those very gargoyles will have influenced the designers of those creatures that are so troubling us. Roni is impressed and draws his attention to the decor of the lab which are reproductions of the cave paintings of 30,000 years ago and pointedly points out the image of an ancient figure wearing a ritual mask that looks not unlike the specimen now standing on his bench and he now wonders just where they might have got the idea from. Nod to the audience, twinkle twinkle, as these creatures might be old friends that we haven't seen for a very long time. This scene is terrific as all these strands start to come together and considers a world now dead that was once teeming with life and all that talk of canals and boyhood disappointments and that first use of that word Martians which was worn out long before something finally came along to claim it because claim it Quatermass and the pit certainly does and with both hands we are no longer in any doubt at least as far as the professor is concerned those creatures are from Mars think on that dear viewer as we fade to the scene of the barrier back at Hobbs slash Hobbs Lane, where an irritated crowd of reporters and civilians is getting restless and the long-suffering police officers are trying to keep them out of the pit as they are joined by Michael Ripper's army sergeant. Professional jealousies are much on the mind of the reporters, given that the banner headlines from the Gazette are from a story they are still being denied and the sergeant is given a copy of the paper, which he takes back with him. Meanwhile, in the pit, Potter is finally able to confirm that there are no further sealed compartments to be found, and he starts to wonder about whether the strands that are now turning to dust were some kind of apparatus, as Quatermass suggested, and starts wondering about quite how it might have worked and whether the hull did a lot of the thinking for them. This kind of lateral thinking is immediately stamped upon by the concrete-headed Breen, who is getting sick and tired of such stark idiocy, and suggests that such nonsense ought to be left to civilians, and not be the kind of thing that troubles military minds. And talking of civilians, remember that drill operator Sladden from episode 3? Well, he pops up again, and all he wants to do is gather up his equipment and go home. His day, however, 
is about to get far worse. However, so does Potter's, as Breen has now been presented with that newspaper, and his bubbling rage becomes stratospheric, with the word panic particularly vexing him, until he has to take a telephone call from the War Office. We cut back to the Nicklin Institute, via a close-up of a skull designed to once again underscore the spookiness of the entire serial, in case you'd forgotten its roots. And whilst this skull fits into the pattern of known evolution, this particular one is comparatively huge, and as Quatermass suggests, the seven or six sets of remains that they have found might have been developed by outside influences, which is seeding much of the events that are yet to come. There's much supposition about the will to survive and how some ancient doomed species might have gone about achieving this compared with a dry acceptance of just how rubbish human beings might be when faced with similar fate. Which, of course, with its dry observation of us all simply carrying on fighting with each other, which, of course, might actually be due to the Martian inheritance, he has yet to properly formulate his theories upon. I told you this was an episode chock full of exposition. If anyone asked once it was all over what the hell that was all about, they probably didn't pay much attention to the first 20 minutes of episode 4. Either that or they forgot all about it, given what happens during the rest of the episode. Meanwhile, as Barbara points out via a hubbub and an open window outside the Institute, a crowd is gathering, convinced that something sinister, uh, another good mood-making word, is going on. Crowds do a lot of that in Quaidamas in the Pit, but maybe we might find out eventually it's not their fault. Barbara is concerned that she might not get through them if they continue to gather, and once again underestimating her, Roni tells her not to worry, she'll be able to get home. Barbara, however, has other plans, because she's forgotten her notes, and ominously has to return to Hobbs slash Hobbs Lane. This plot point is left dangling because Quaidamash receives a phone call from the War Office, because, as he puts it, they're in trouble. And so we dissolve back to the War Office last seen in episode one, where Robert Percival's minister, alongside his secretary Richard Dare, is, quite frankly, angry enough to be refusing to take any of the several phone calls that are coming through to him. The Martians have well and truly hit the fan, and it's all about him, and he's kicking downwards in a way that all government bullies have always done and continue to do, even now. There's a significant moment which harks right back to episode one when the minister misspeaks about Breen taking over at the rocket group, which doesn't go unnoticed. And yet, still Quatermass tries to take full responsibility and gets castigated for his trouble for acting as if he'd been caught scrumping apples. However, Quatermass then tries to explain his educated guesswork and gets the minister to suppose a great deal of information that might be considered preposterous by anyone not in full possession of all the facts that he has learned and theories that he has developed. Theories basically about little green men and spaceships and things not of this earth and connections with the bones of ape men found in Knightsbridge. Granted, it's a lot for anyone to take in, especially one who knows for certain that Mars is a dead world and isn't really listening to something he considered to be utter nonsense. You realise what you're saying, that we owe our human condition to the intervention of insects? You can almost smell the indignation. It's much the same as the anti-evolutionists thought back in the Victorian age, when Darwin suggested they might be related to monkeys. He's dumbstruck, at least until he hears another point of view, which he much prefers, Breen's theory, when it is finally smugly revealed. The Germans, back in 1944, during the last days of the war, launching a propaganda weapon designed to create exactly the sort of panic and speculation that the vessel currently is. The minister likes this. It has the Wagnerian black imagination that could be believed of the painstaking people he calls the Hun and feels confident and delighted that he can announce to the cabinet and the press that the entire thing 
has been an enormous hoax and put the entire thing to bed in a nice, comfortable, convenient package that he can see the common sense of. And he obsequiously starts looking to place the blame at the feet of those he holds responsible for this ridiculous tale. And so, as he gets on the phone again to explain the nature of this false alarm to his masters, we see the looks on the faces of both Quatermass and Breen, and they are both, in their own way, priceless. This has so much still to say about the manipulation of fake news and what people choose to believe, even when faced with a whole mountain of facts that don't quite fit in with their view of how the world works. And if you don't think that Nigel Neal really was very understanding about the way the world worked and continues to work, then you really haven't been paying attention. And so, back at Hobbs slash Hobbs Lane, near to the barrier, and that big sign warning of an exploded bomb, things can begin to return to normal, much to the upset of the gathered masses hoping to see some excitement in another of those ordinary people vox pop vignettes that Neil observes so well. There's going to be a short statement in the morning and the disillusioned masses disperse, so, quite frankly, the minister, boorish though he is, might have done them all a favour given what's about to happen. Yeah, I know, I keep promising exciting things, but I, I have to keep you on tenterhooks, don't I? Otherwise you'll just think this is the dull episode where everything is explained before the big finale happens. Anyway, we're here now. Sladden is hanging about, still waiting to retrieve his equipment, and muttering about the delicate work that he's been told to wait for them to finish, actually involving the slinging of sandbags. As Gibson explains, however, Sladden is only a civilian, and therefore he's irrelevant in the pecking order, and our army chorus again fillers in on the frostbite the team have been suffering from as the energy is absorbed into the device. The fact that the Sarge isn't all bad, and whether or not this missile really was a jerry job, as they are being told. Although one of the sappers does point out rather shrewdly that they'd had all those stories about this place long before they had jerrys. Give that soldier a promotion. There's also a little nod back to the little Sapper Westy, the figure through the wall guy from last week, remember? And the Sarge suddenly seems rather terrifying to them again. Anyway, Sladden finally gets permission to retrieve his gear and to knock off the generator and gets handed a pair of gloves to wear and the bomb disposal team bid him a fond farewell. Back at the barrier, Barbara is struggling to persuade the police officer to let her through, but she is rescued by Potter who distracts the police officer for long enough for Barbara to go through. Potter tells the officer that it's all right before adding a quiet but significant I think, which are actually pretty much the final words spoken in this episode as the tension starts to creep up again and we slip into a lengthy sequence that is played almost entirely without dialogue as the diabolical forces start to build and build and build. We see a view of Sladden taken along the axis of the interior of the spaceship, framed by the octagonal shape with all those depressed roundels in them, as the sound starts again, and close-ups of Richard Shaw's highly expressive face show a genuine sense of fear inside the now darkened hull. And, as the tapping and scratching increases, he panics and falls over, only to see his spanner moving towards him along the floor all by itself, and the various wires still attached to the hull and his drilling rig start to writhe and thrash about as if possessed by something, and the horrific noises build and build, and suddenly Sladden is running, making a break for freedom, in some dreadful fearful parody of a human run, half alien, half primate, as almost all the previously inanimate objects, the planks, the cables, the rocks and the lamps, within the building site, that is the pit, seem to spring to life and seem suddenly determined to kill him. 
As Barbara chooses precisely the worst moment to enter the pit, she too is caught up in this terrible whirlwind of objects and unearthly noise, and as the almost unrecognisably changed figure of Sladden, looking not unlike our mental picture of that figure that Westy saw go through the wall, passes by her without being aware of her, she is struck by a flying object and falls to the ground. Up at street level, the soldiers are frozen in fear as, in a clever piece of framing, the bizarre, broken shape of the shadow of Sladden approaches them, and they react in horror as they and we finally see him as he passes them and dashes through the frightened remnants of the dispersing crowds. Potter heads off to rescue the injured Barbara, but all is quiet in the pit now as the sound and the fury seem to have left along with Sladden. Sladden pauses exhausted in the pool of light, clinging on for dear life to the street lamp that provides it. For a moment, despite the fear in his eyes, it all seems to have stopped, but then the knocking noises start up again and he fearfully runs off into the night. In a quiet street nearby, the proprietor of a mobile cafe is serving up late-night teas to a couple as a frankly exhausted-looking Sladden staggers towards them all and leans pitifully against the counter, his hand reaching out desperate for someone, anyone, to help him. But salvation can't be found here, and in an astonishingly effective use of a simple physical effect, the piles of cups and saucers and plates start flinging themselves at him, and he has to flee again, pursued by fragments of shattering crockery and that dreadful, almost unbearable, howling sound. What the viewers must have made of these diabolical manifestations of poltergeistry is anybody's guess, but there is still more to come in this tour de force of an astonishingly terrifying series of events. Sladden arrives at some heavy iron gates, and we hear the voices of a church choir singing as he makes his way along a pathway bordered with gravestones. As Sladden finally collapses on the gravel path of the churchyard, he looks up pleadingly into the face of a vicar who we just saw leaving the church. This is Noel Howlett. Later on, he would be best known for his generally respectable roles in various sitcoms, but for the moment he says nothing. All of his dialogue will come in the next episode, but for now he simply stares down at the pitiful face of the poor wretch whose face is achingly pleading for some help, and then the earth beneath his arm starts to move all by itself, and as we cut back to Sladden from the face of the astonished vicar, the gravel beneath him is rippling and rippling as the credits start to roll, eventually mercifully fading to black. What on earth the 9.5 million people who saw it made of that sequence when they first saw it? is anybody's guess. But I imagine the word of mouth and the Did You See Brigade had rather a lot to say over the course of the following week as a further 1.1 million viewers would be added for the next episode, The Wild Hunt, the following week. And even now, I still find myself getting utterly exhausted whenever I watch that sequence as it builds and it builds with nothing in the way of dialogue. It's all in the astounding monochrome visuals. Don't let anyone tell you that horror always works so much better in full colour. And the sound effects... And just when you think it might be over, another terrifying image arrives to supplant it, and you do almost find yourself forgetting about all that exposition earlier on, and the fact that none of the main cast even feature in it, as it unfolds to terrify a nation and remain firmly burned in the memories of those who first saw it live. Astonishing stuff. <laughs> Many thanks to Martin, who, yes, thank who will, Martin. of course, carry on mm -hmm. in the future. Carry on quite a mess. Oh, I'd like to see that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Next, Paul comes along and talks to us about some... Rare soaps. 
on the archives, listeners. It's me, Paul the Shy Yeti, uh, Paul Chandler, from the Shy Life Podcast, here to review a couple of series on my own this month. So I thought that I would uh, do an article on, well, sort of linked to a DVD that I bought a while ago. The DVD is called Soapbox, Volume 1. Uh, it's from Network. I don't think there was ever a Volume 2 of Soapbox. I may be wrong. It was released in 2011. And basically, it's a four-disc set of mostly obscure soap operas or ongoing dramas. I'm not going to try and cover every episode uh, on this disc. I'll give you a brief idea of the episodes that are on this set. I'm going to check out a couple of those episodes. There's an episode of Coronation Street, an episode of Crossroads, an episode of Rooms of Families, For Maddie with Love, The Cedar Tree, Marked Personal, Coronation Street again, General Hospital, Emmerdale Farm, Harriet's Back in Town, Parkins Patch, The Practice, Weaver's Green, Emmerdale, London Bridge, Gems, Albion Market, Emergency Ward 10, the 20th anniversary edition of The Bill, uh, Market in Honey Street, Revelations and Call Oxbridge 2000. Um, I think I can probably get more than one article out of this, to be honest, but I'm not really going to be focusing on the more famous series. I think Crossroads and Coronation Street and Emmerdale Farm are famous enough and maybe, maybe they'll get articles in their own right at some stage. As for rooms, they've been repeating that on Talking Pictures. Part of me would like to have watched more of those, but um, I just find that I watch so much. I I set the recorder for so many things on Talking Pictures that I just don't have the time in the average week to watch. So I'm afraid I've only watched the odd five, ten minutes of rooms. It's it's just just too much. There's just too much. but anyway, I did consider sort of trying to watch quite a few of them and just sort of bailing every time I got bored. But that seems unfair. So, no, I've selected uh, two shows from the list that I just read you. I nearly chose Families because I did used to watch that show. Although the episode on the disc is uh, the very first episode, which isn't the era that I was watching. So, no, I'm going to choose two shows that... Uh, I know absolutely nothing about, and uh, I'll see what I think of them, or at least the episodes that are on the disc. I'm going to start with an episode of a show called Marked Personal. The episode that they have got on this disc is from the 30th of October 1973. It says, Georgina Layton feels lost but determined as she walks through the doors of BYA, a vast industrial concern. I did find a Wikipedia page about Marked Personal, and it says, it's quite interesting, Marked Personal was a British daytime television drama created by Charles Dennis and starring Stephanie Beecham and Heather Shayson. Obviously, I know who um, Stephanie Beecham is. Um, Heather Chasen looks like she played many parts in The Navy Lark. She played Lydia Simmons in EastEnders. She was in Crossroads between 82 and 86. She was, she'd been in Doctors, Holby City and Family Affairs. She's 92, although retired. Yes, she's still alive, anyway. 
back to Mark Personal. Um, the series was made by Thames Television and consisted of 90 episodes shown twice weekly on Tuesday and Wednesday afternoons during 73 and 74. It is set in the fictional personnel department of a large company called BYA, a large industrial concern. Stephanie Beecham was replaced by Sheila Scott Wilkinson, playing Lydia Carpenter in later episodes. It looks like she uh, took over the lead, played a different character from Stephanie Beecham. Who else is in Mark Personal? Um... Now, if Nick was here, he'd recognise a lot more of these names than I do. Rupert Davies, he was in it. There's Dr Jack Morrison, I recognise his name. He played My Grey in the 60s. Uh, John Paul played Gerald Painter. Uh, I know John Paul from Doomwatch, of course. Um, I guess he must have made this once Doomwatch was finished. Didn't Doomwatch finish in about 72, 73? Um, uh, Glyn Owen played Security Chief Nolan. And Lewis Collins played Len Thomas. Okay, well, I'm going to pop an episode on. Well, I've only got one, but I'll pop it in. And um, I'll, I'll, well, I'll report back. Well, the episode's begun. Um, I wonder if this is the first one. Stephanie Beecham has a very interesting hat. It's blue, but uh, the inside has a pattern on it. And, well, it's sort of turned up. It, it, her dress is, well... Um, it's, it's, it's all quite fabulous. I must say, I didn't really warm to the theme music. Um, yeah, Stephanie Beecham is heading to a lift. Um, a lift that a lot of people have just got out of. Dear, there's a man who's been... He's been tied to the top of a forklift truck. Uh, and everyone's gone for break and he can't get down. Did I say it's in colour? It's quite a good print, actually. Um, not been much dialogue so far. In fact, there's been no dialogue. The, um, there are a lot of offices that are all empty with brown doors and beige walls. Could be an episode of Sapphire and Steel. Good morning. Good morning. Who are you? Georgina Lee. Oh, sorry. You're early. Make the turn. First day. Wanted to give a good impression. Good job. I was on time. Is this my office? Yeah, that's right. Um... Yes, this must be the first episode. And, uh, yeah, Stephanie Beecham. She's playing Georgina Layton. Well, if there's anything I can do to help you settle in, you've only got to ask. Thank you. I hope it'll be a fairly gentle process. Looks like she's coming in as a more senior member of staff. She's got a very 1973 haircut. This looks like a slightly longer version of the 1972 haircut. Oh, I recognise him. How's you did this, Stanley? Russell Podge, Mr Smart. And David. The feet won't touch the ground. Oh, sorry, now. Oh, Christopher Biggins. Yeah, what about Pinky's face moving down to the top of that forehead? Humpty Dumpty. What's the joke? <laughs> They're in a, um, what's it called? A cafeteria. Christopher Biggins, Christopher Biggins has got oil all over his shirt. Well, I've watched her halfway through uh, the first episode of Mark Personal, and I'm rather enjoying it. I'd certainly watch more. The story is about, obviously, Stephanie Beecham starting a new job, and two people have been fired for a prank, uh, one of them being... Christopher Biggins' character, and um, there's a third member of that group who should have been fired too, 
but he's the son of the boss and he doesn't get fired and he doesn't think that's fair. He thinks that either they should all three go or all three stay. So even in like the first 10, 15 minutes, there's a lot happening and uh, um, yeah, I kind of want to know what happens next. So I'm going to, I'm going to continue. Yeah. So next up, I'm going to watch a show called Harriet's Back in Town. Again, I think this is the first episode. It's from the uh, 17th of October 1972. The premise is Harriet Preston watches her ex-husband Tom leave the divorce court with a glamorous young model who has shattered their marriage. Now, let me find out a bit more about this for you. So, according to IMDb, Harriet's Back in Town is one of a raft of ITV lunchtime dramas which included Emmerdale Farm, which started on the same day. Also, Crown Court, Marked Personal and The Cedar Tree. Um, actually, I should say, um, considering it was made for a lunchtime drama, um, there was, well, they said the word bastard in Mark Personal, which, you know, somebody was called that, and, well, <laughs> I'm not sure that you'd be allowed to use that now on a lunchtime drama, would you? Maybe? I'm not sure. Um, but uh, there you go. What else have I got to tell you about? Harriet's back in town. Um, has at least one familiar face. It has Pauline Yates. Uh, she was uh, in 92 episodes. I don't know if that was as many as they did. Let me see. It says, it says there was only one series. From the looks of it, it ran for almost exactly a year. There were 104 episodes, at least according to IMDb. It finished on the 17th of October 1973 and, and started the 17th of October 1972. Paddy Russell directed four episodes. Christopher H. Bidmead wrote six episodes. So yes, in um, 92 episodes we have Pauline Yates as Harriet Preston. In 90 episodes we have um, William Russell from Doctor Who um, as Tom Preston. And um, he has quite long hair compared to uh, um, (laughs) how he looks in... 63 and 64 in Doctor Who. Um, who else is in this? Lots of names that I think are vaguely familiar, but I, 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 I'm I, not sure. I'll, I'll just read them. Edwin Richfield, Miranda Bell, Sally Baisley, Doran Goodwin, Stephen Yardley. He's in 18 episodes. Um, Philip Brack, Toby Robbins, Carol Molum, Elizabeth Bell, George Benson, Joy Harrison, Mitzi Rogers, Francis Tumulty. I think she was married to Sting. Yes, I just checked. She was. Um, Anushka Hempel was in ten episodes. Harry Toom in eight. Richard Vernon in six. Brian Wilde, Kevin Stoney. Um, Gareth Thomas in four as a chauffeur. There really are a lot of people in this show. Dennis Chinnery. Christopher Chisholm. Julian Holloway. And now I'm just skipping names because Judy Matheson. Uh, uh, she of uh, 
well, one or two horror films and um, um, Blake Seven. Peter Bowles was in two episodes. Jan Harvey, gosh, Madeline Smith, Jack Watling in two episodes, Terence Alexander in two episodes, Colin Baker in two episodes. They had some good people in this show. Gareth Hunt in two episodes, Peter Jeffrey. They must have had a lot of um, guest stars just popping in for a couple of episodes. John Savadon in two episodes. Catherine Lee Scott even in two episodes. Catherine Lee Scott of Dark Shadows. Nicholas Smith, Victor Spinetti. Intriguing, intriguing. Um, Well, I think I should probably start watching a bit. See what I think of it. I'll say this is episode one. with his um, shoulder length hair it's all over I'm free title music is rather like something from a sitcom um, which is weird considering I think it's supposed to be a drama but uh, maybe I'm wrong maybe I'm not totally uh, fully understanding the the sunset I think Russell definitely needs a haircut smoothly, I think. Yes. Brief and to the point. Oh, very. Twenty years demolished in less than twenty minutes. Mm, quite. Kevin Stoney. Still one of those things. No one to blame. Uh, no. About the decree absolute. I'll apply to the court in three months' time. It should be automatic. Thank you for all you've done, Mr. Moffat. Not at all. Um, about the bill. Oh. No hurry. No hurry at all. Well, I'd like to get everything settled. Yes, exactly. well, I'll um, all in due course. Come on. Well, I've watched some of the episode so far. The first episode of Harriet's Back in Town. Um, it's only got potential. Um, I'd be interested to see, particularly with that cast, how it develops. But uh, the first episode is after Harriet and her husband have split up. And you meet uh, their daughter, uh, who seems to have sided more with her mother. Um, Thankfully, William Russell gets a haircut, or the character gets a haircut, um, by the middle of the first episode. So he looks a bit less scruffy. I'm interested that uh, there is um, uh, quite a lot of uh, contemporary music, which I, I don't know whether that would be a problem for it ever to be released on DVD. I, I'm not sure if there would be a demand or not. Um, yeah, there were uh, contemporary songs by Slade and the Hollies that I noticed in the first half of the episode. Uh, I'm going to keep on um, going to keep on watching to the end. I have, I have skipped a, a few little bits because uh, the scenes do seem quite long and really they're just kind of talking about the divorce and 
um, yeah, different people siding with different sides of the couple, and um, yeah, I don't want to get too invested knowing that I can't see any more. But uh, anyway, I'll report back. It rather looks like uh, Harriet is getting herself a bit of a makeover uh, and is selling the house. I think you might have told me what? that you were selling the house. Oh, why should I? It's my house. It was mine once. Oh, actually, no. You only lived here. You never really cared for it much. And anyway, you gave it to me. The show is set in Isha, not far from where I live. The air in Isha is better for the growing child. Yes, that's what we told ourselves. And now I find I can't bear the air in Isha. It's what's called evolution. Not sure from the OB work uh, whether that is Isha. Um, I know somebody who probably would know, but he's not here to help out. But, <laughs> yes, doesn't much look like each other I know, but uh, who knows? Maybe it's uh, it's probably filmed somewhere in that area. Oh, I haven't seen Jane for a while. Oh, you should. Uh, Frank? They were damned unfit. The words I best remember from our marriage are, what's for dinner? Just because Sue happens to be a lousy cook doesn't mean to say I'm not blissfully happy. And thanking God I'm away from these suburban values where what's on the table makes or breaks the evening. Good. I'm glad you're happy. By the end of the episode, it looks like Harriet has been to Mallorca and maybe met somebody. Um, theme music's by Robert Early. I'm not sure that it suits the material. In <laughs> the same way as I wasn't that sure about the theme of uh, Marked Personal either. But uh, I don't know. I don't think I found that quite as interesting as Mark Personal but uh, I guess they are quite different series um, the, the, the Harriet's Back in Town seemed to have um, although it had more OB work it did have quite long scenes um, of talky talk talk um, whereas Mark Personal seemed to have more well a lot more story and they were you know they moved through quite um, a lot of story in that first episode well, that's about all I have to say for those two shows. Uh, obviously, I only saw an episode of each. But uh, out of Mark Personal and Harriet's Back in Town, I think I probably enjoyed Mark Personal more. I would be quite interested to see how the story of Harriet develops, considering how many special guests the show seems to have. But if I was going to buy one show or the other, I think I would um, definitely be more interested in buying Mark Personal. But as I said before, it's difficult you don't want to get too invested knowing that there are no more episodes available to buy. Anyway, um, I'll speak to you again soon. Thanks, Andrew and Lisa, for letting me talk about these two quite obscure lost soaps. OK, bye-bye. What happened in Mallorca? That, my darling, is nothing to do with you.
Many thanks to Paul. Yes, thank you, Paul. And he'll be back again in the future. He will with something else. So we're coming to the end of this episode already. Mm-hmm. It's a bit shorter than yes. some some of them. But We've got you, a bonus hour. Of... You've already got one bonus hour this yes, month. You, you, might, you might get another one at this rate. Yeah. Uh, so thank you to everyone for helping with this one. Mm-hmm. We'll be back with episode 48, mm-hmm. of course. Yes. But to round off, here's Ben Baker to look at... Cannon and Ball. Being in my late 30s, I'm from the age that saw alternative comedians slowly become the mainstream, displacing, but not really replacing, the old shiny floor, cheesy variety shows fronted by double acts like The Two Ronnies, Little and Large, Les Dennis and Dustin G, The Crankies, and even Bernie Winters and Schnorbits. It's this shared cultural memory of the cheap and cheerful old-style variety that saw many of these acts feature highly in a vote we ran on my own podcast, Don't Let's Chat, when we asked people for their worst comedy double acts. And, for the majority, I could kind of see why many of them had been voted for, as tastes have undoubtedly changed, as have production values over the decades. And yet, for one such double act, I point-blank refuse to allow them entry. Maybe it was the Looney Tunes-esque comic violence or quick-talking act heavily polished in working men's clubs throughout the 70s. Or maybe it's the effortless vigour that no doubt came from finally getting their big break after years of setbacks. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Tommy Cannon and Bobby Ball! Whatever it was, Cannon and Ball truly stood out from the pack especially when revisiting their LWT shows in the modern age. By the time the two men, formerly known as Robert Harper and Thomas Derbyshire, made it to their own show in July 1979, the pair had already been lined up as part of the much-hyped and much-discussed flop series Bruce Forsyth's Big Night, only to find their segments in the bin every week, as producers panicked to cork the rapidly sinking good ship SS Chin Humour before it completely sank into the Thames. Thank you very much indeed. Good evening, ladies, gentlemen. Nice to see you. To see you. Luckily, LWT's Michael Grade saw them perform some of these junk sketches and gave them their own show. Which was then immediately interrupted after two weeks by the strike, which took almost all of ITV off air for two and a half months. This, however, turned out to be something of a boon for the pair, as what would have been a summer off-scene bit of filler got to finish its run in the winter months, turning them instantly into stars. Heading back to that first series in 1979, viewers are greeted immediately by some cheery film titles that get across the basics of the characters simply enough, as a dapper Tommy Cannon plays golf, as an over-incumbent Bobby Ball goes fishing in inappropriate places around London. As for the shows themselves, it's a simple mix of double-act segments followed by sketches, then a double-act segment and so on, usually featuring special guests more in the character actor range than big celebrities. Cannonball themselves are quite complete as the characters they'd become known and loved for, but their quick timing and physical comedy feels totally unique to a strange, surreal, some savage streak in places that's often forgotten, as we see Tommy in his casual sportswear and Bobby in his familiar bow tie and red braces. I think this one for Buskin in Oxford Street. Yeah, it were his fault. I'd have got a wavy on to make me carry the piano. <laughs> <laughs> 
mouth. That's not why I brought him in, though. He answers the description of the Leesden knicker pincher. <laughs> Leesden knicker pincher, eh? Bloody nasty specimen. Broke into a lady's house first day, stole three pairs of soggy jockey shorts out of her spin drive. No, it couldn't have been me. My mum told me never to wear soggy jockey shorts. <laughs> Case I got knocked down by a bus. But you fit the description perfectly, mate. A demented dwarf with baggy trousers and a droopy tash. To watch series two immediately after feels, well, a little bit of a come down from that first run, which suddenly feels much more slick, headed by a new set of titles as silhouettes of the two introduce graphics before walking out onto a noticeably larger set. There's now a house pop group, Ritz and star shoppers themselves in the openings, rather than part of sketches. When the first episode ends with a fully period costumed musketeer sketch, viewers could understandably be on the phone to trading standards for illegal Morecambe and Wisery in a built-up area. But that's thanks in part to the new producer and sole credited writer on this series, Sid Green, who'd been instrumental in making Eric and Earn megastars in the 60s with their ITV work before they went to BBC at the middle. Thankfully, things get a bit more eclectic as the series progresses, with one noticeable scene performed entirely without words, with Doctor Star Ernest Clark leading the duo into a food fight. It's easy to see why people conflated Cannon and Ball with the worst of 80s shiny floor show excesses, as there's a familiarity to the sort of comedy variety shows that were made by the dozen in the decade that gave us Boy George, Sexual Swear Words and TV puppet Alf. The presentation is a little tacky and very ITV, but Series 3 finds longer sketches with less reliance on celebrity names, giving the duo more room to play with their personas, with the centre of the act being the clash of the manic childishness of Ball, which can jump from headbutting destructiveness to heartbreaking seconds, and the often overlooked Tommy Cannon's menacing disdain, trying to keep the train on the tracks. Yes, both are idiots, much like Markham and Wise or even later Lee and Herring, but are at different points trying to prove otherwise. And a brilliant running joke in Series 3 as Tom and Bob walking up some show business steps at the end, only to constantly get stuck at the top. By this point, they'd even managed to get their own weekly look-in comic strip for several years, joining the illustrious ranks of Wurzel Gummidge, Terrorhawks, The World at One, Threads and the Embassy World Professional Championships 1986. Now, a dramatic reading which I know you're not used to. A dramatic reading by Thomas Cannon and his little friend Bobby Ball, entitled Who Is Man? What is man? Asketh we about it. We will go ahead now with this speech and asketh we as we may say what about it. Asketh we. Between series, an interesting one-off from January 2nd, 1982, features the duo live from Drury Lane, performing with a full orchestra and doing many of their club act pieces. It's a sort of bombast and size that gives way to what Series 4 is going to be, which ups the length of each show by 15 minutes, and therefore the boring musical items too. The performances remain great, but once again the sketches feel the need to drag in celebrities as much as possible, simply because, why not? It's Saturday night. It's the 80s. A rare Easter special sees Sid Green finally stepping down after a few series as producer and the duo promoting their big screen debut, The Boys in Blue, with a performance of the magnificent theme tune and even some on-set footage, which, to be honest, is a lot more fun than watching the film itself. Get up early every day. I take him down what you got to say. We 
Remaining in that longer slot with all the celebrity guests, but a shot in the arm is given by new producer Paul Jackson, then between series of The Young Ones. Having already produced the two runs and three of a kind, he gets instantly what makes Tommy and Bobby work, and the writing team even finds room for new names, including Jeff Atkinson, Rob Grant and Doug Naylor, all of whom would soon join Spitting Image, amongst more Sparehead 3-based projects. Jackson also managed to get Rick Merlin as a guest star for a genuinely magnificent sketch in which all three get to play up to their most maniacal lunacy. Considering the rumours the double act were not getting on very well at the time, it's probably as much catharsis as comedy here. Um, we just, uh, we'll like a bit of information if it's possible. We're shut! Who's <laughs> <laughs> that shut on the door? Well, of course it doesn't say shut on the door, Grandad. <laughs> if it said shut on the door, nobody would come in, would they? <laughs> so we shut inside. <laughs> come here, won't you? Come here. Come here. What? Come down, come what? down. <laughs> Hang on! Hang on! It's a good job you stopped then. I could have killed your wife then. Yeah. <laughs> Series 7 saw another change as the Cannon and Ball show became a sitcom about Tommy and Bobby's fictional home lives in a luxury London flat, with only brief intros and outros on stage. Whilst Eric and Ern had done similar in the 70s, a lot of the gags here were about how out of the depth the increasingly middle-aged northerners Bob and Tom were in these ever-changing mid-80s with newfangled video machines and sushi bars. The two sadly couldn't parlay their success into any other kind of format, but did give it a go with Cannonball's Casino and Plaza Patrol, although sadly both were fairly dead on arrival. Live-wise, they still play to packed audiences and continue to this day. I think people love them because there's a genuine affection visible between the two, and when up against it, they always stick together. Although, I still can't get my head around the mid-80s rumours of them being on all of the cocaines. Oh, yes! 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 Yes again, indeed! Still, it's good to see them crop up on TV, sometimes together, sometimes apart, and a celebratory appearance on Harry Hill's Alien Fun Capsule even saw the whole panel dress up and sing that wonderful theme tune. Now, how did it go again? Oh yeah. Laugh me a laugh, grin me a grin, and then I know that we can win. Dance me a dance, joke me a joke, and blow the clouds away. And next month, Ben will be back to discuss why Comeback Mrs. Noah is actually a serious allegory for repressed familial psychosis in a Brechtian environment. That was episode 47 of Round the Archives. Starring Lisa Parker, Andrew Trowbridge 
Martin Holmes, Andy Priestner, Paul Chandler and Ben Baker. Thanks also to Mark Aldridge. On the musical side, you heard Dan Tate and Paul Chandler. The scripts for Keeping Up Appearances were by Roy Clark, mostly. And the producer was Harold Snowd. (laughs) 